Well, good morning. Nice to see everyone this morning. Sunday morning is my favorite part of the week because I get to gather with God's people. We get to fellowship with one another. And every Sunday morning is a reminder that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And it's a day of rejoicing and celebration and victory. And so I hope that you look forward each Sunday with that expectation. We're going to serve and worship and proclaim the risen Christ. We're blessed people that we have the freedom to do that. And I, I pray that we take every opportunity that we have to gather and to be in the presence of God with his people. I encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned to silent or turned off during this time so they're not going off during the sermon. Good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I have some ideas of some places of where you are, uh, but we'll let that between, be between you and the Lord. But as you open God's word this morning, even as we're doing here, would you have a, a teachable heart to see what God has for us in his word this morning? So welcome and good morning to all of you online. It was not surprising that it happened, and it was probably predictable that it was going to happen. I mean, after all, Jesus had just been performing a number of great signs and miracles among the Gentiles, very similar to what he had been performing among the Jews. His reputation, his renown is growing in the region of Galilee and beyond. The power structures in Jerusalem surely are feeling threatened by all that is happening. With the impact, of this itinerant Jewish preacher undo the delicate balance of power between the Roman overlords and the Jewish parties and control of religious life in Israel? There was a lot that was on the line. The Jewish leaders who enjoyed a measure of autonomy under Roman rule, which was un unique in that time, they profited as well from the status quo of being in charge of all the religious activities of Jerusalem. And they're becoming more and more uncomfortable with what this Jesus of Nazareth is proclaiming and what he is doing. So what will they do? Surely a confrontation was inevitable. They could not accept his message. They could not accept his messages and what he was doing, his methods, his ministries, his going from place to place proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And yet crowds are starting to follow him. And they're getting bigger in number and in intensity, and it's time to act. But what could they do? Well, taking a cue from a previous generation, they decided they're going to put Jesus to the test. That would settle it, they thought. We'll give him a test, and when he can't perform it to our satisfaction, that would be the end of Jesus' ministry. At least that was their thinking. Well, as we come to chapter 16 in the Gospel according to Matthew, we come to a critical point in the story, in the life, in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And we'll have a chance to say more about that as we move along, but the religious leaders of his day are at that age-old crossroads that the leaders of each generation, and in fact the followers of each generation have to come to. Will they follow more or less the Caesar, the Lord of the day, the leaders, the influencers, the social movers and shakers, or will they follow the Christ? Will they follow the vast, attractive, skeptical world with its pleasures and treasures and ambitions and its promise? Or will they dare to follow the meek 
majestic and winsome figure of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is a decision that is before each of us today, one that impacts not only our life in the immediate, but for eternity itself. Well, with that as our introduction this morning, as we prepare to encounter God through his living word, I invite the congregation to stand in honor of God Almighty as we read his word that we will consider this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. And the inspired word of God, given to us by God the Holy Spirit, says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given to us for edification and for our instruction. In it, Jesus is going to warn us to pay attention to what he is doing in our midst. Let us receive it with that intention. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have an enormous privilege of gathering in this place, knowing that you are with us, knowing that you are leading and guiding us. And as you have given us this word, we now heed the work of God the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds so that we will understand, that we will grow, we will have our eyes open to see, we'll have our hearts humbled before you, we'll have our desire for you grow, our love for you intensify, and a desire to worship you ever increase. But in order for that to happen, Father, we need the work of your Holy Spirit, and so we surrender to his lordship and work in our lives now. Point us to Jesus, we pray, in his holy name. If you're not already done so, I invite you to turn to your sermon outline or the Open the Church app where you can take notes. And it's easy with our church app. You can copy the notes and send them off to someone this week. So it's a way of following up with someone and encouraging them throughout the week and what you are learning in God's Word. Well, our first major point this morning is the challenge, show us a sign. The challenge, show us a sign. As I've said, as we begin... Matthew 16, it marks a significant turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Now, even as I say that, I know that every chapter in this book is important. Everyone has been given by God the Holy Spirit, but there are certain chapters that have a pivoting point in what God is doing, and this is one of those chapters. In this chapter, as we move along, we will see perhaps the greatest confession of faith in Jesus Christ from the lips of his apostles. And in this chapter, we will see that Jesus is going to make a decisive turning point where he will turn and move towards Jerusalem and a trek that will bring him to the cross. We ended last week reading the end of Matthew 15, which said, And after sending away the crowd, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And he said that Jesus had been spending some time in Gentile lands, and now he has crossed back over the Sea of Galilee to Gentile lands. He performed miracles over there, similar to what he had already been performing among the people of Israel in the region of Galilee. And his presence and his ministry are now a growing threat 
to the power and control of the Jewish parties in Jerusalem and the Roman leaders who want to keep the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, who do not want anything to disturb their ability to collect tax and to have dominion over a people. And so we begin in Matthew 16 with a strange coalition, a strange coalition. Verse 1 says, and I'm just going to truncate it a little bit, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. Word has spread about what Jesus has been doing in Galilee and what he's been doing in Gentile areas. And so a group of religious leaders comprised of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to see him. They want to put him to the test. Now, as a reminder of the players, the Pharisees, they get their name from the word that means the separated ones or to separate. So they are the separated people. They want everyone in Israel to follow their interpretation and application of the law. They were the ones that were promoting the tradition of the elders, this layer upon layer of additions that they had added over centuries to where it was far removed from the spirit of the law itself. And in their minds, to violate the tradition of the elders was to violate the word of God itself. Therefore, we saw this confrontation a few weeks ago where Jesus says, you're breaking the tradition of the elders. And he said, yes, but you're breaking the word of God. The Pharisees were the self-righteous party. They were the rigorous inspectors of the behaviors of those around them. They were against Roman rule. They dearly wanted to be liberated from them, but they were willing to wait for God to bring it about. They were waiting for a cataclysmic event where the Messiah would intervene and overthrow the Roman overlords, and they would again be at the helm. Of the two main religious parties in Jerusalem during that time, they were the main party they were the one more in touch with the people on the ground, the man on the street. They very much wanted people to keep the law. They did not get along with the Sadducees. The Sadducees who are mentioned 14 times in the Gospel of Matthew, more than in the rest of the New Testament books put together. They're only mentioned once in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Mark, only a couple of times, five times in fact, in the book of Acts. Matthew wants us to understand who this party is so we can understand the difference that Jesus makes. The Sadducees were the ruling class of the priesthood, and they had the ruling majority in the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body for the Jews in the first century. And they followed the Torah, the first five books of the law. They didn't accept as much the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't accept the extras that the Pharisees tried to bring through the tradition of the elders. They didn't accept anything that wasn't clearly presented in the five books of the law, which is why they claim not to believe in angels or not to believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were in league with Rome. So whereas the Pharisees are the ones that wanted Rome to be gone, the Sadducees are the ones that wanted Rome to stay because they had control and influence, because they were in league with the Romans. They were the majority in the Sanhedrin, as I've said. They had control over the temple, which means what? They had control over the exchange of money. They had control over the sale of animals that took place in the temple grounds that the people needed to buy for the temple sacrifices during the feasts. So, of course, they're making a nice profit of all the activities that are going on. Well, if the Pharisees were self-righteous, the Sadducees were self-indulgent, seeking enjoyment and pleasure and power in this life because they didn't believe in a life after this one. So here we have these two groups very much opposed to each other. So given the nature of them, how, how is it then that they come together? 
the Sadducees had more control in Jerusalem itself because they were prominent there, controlling the governing council, controlling the temple, whereas the Pharisees influenced more the man on the street, so they had more influence in the surrounding regions. And in fact, because the Sadducees are mentioned so infrequently, and the fact that they're hardly ever mentioned at being outside of Jerusalem, some look at this passage and call into question its veracity. How could the Sadducees, who rarely went outside of Jerusalem, be present here as they're going with the Pharisees to the coastline of the Sea of Galilee? And I think the simplest answer is they were part of an official delegation of those that were coming to represent official Judaism in the first century. So with these two parties, what would bring them together? Since they were in opposition to one another, why would they come to want to confront this Jesus? the self-righteous Pharisee, the self-indulgent Sadducee. And to ask the question is to answer it. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. He was a threat to both of them and, and the status quo that they had and the level of influence that they had. Jesus preached the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And he preached the compassion and self-control required to minister to the needy masses. And so Jesus was a threat to the status quo of both of these groups by announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven over which he was the king. It's often the case as we study the history of man that political alignments are often formed because of a sense of expediency. And though certain parties might be opposed to one another, well, in a crunch, the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees formed an unholy alliance to come and confront the Holy Son of God. And this is not the last time that they will do this. It will happen a few more times in the events of Jesus that will eventually lead to his final week of suffering and being persecuted and being put on a cross. So we have a monumental event here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming together now. It shows the growing awareness and interest in what Jesus is doing, the impact that he is having, the concern that they are showing over his claims and over the number of followers that he has. This would be shaking the inner core the powers that be in Jerusalem. And what would the impact be of this unique coming together, this unique coalition? Well, in this case, it's a sinful request. And our text goes on to say, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So they're coming as an official delegation to confront Jesus. Now, it's interesting that these two groups are mentioned as being together one time before in the gospel according to Matthew. It happened way back in, in chapter 3 when they came to check on and confront John the Baptist who was baptizing down at the Jordan River and was proclaiming a baptism of righteousness, a time of change, of transformation going on in the history of Israel. So they challenged John who said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they challenged Jesus who began his ministry with the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here it's clear that they have rejected what Jesus is saying and, and what he is doing, and so they come and demand that he performs a sign for them. Show us proof that you're the Messiah, that you're the Son of God, that you're the one that you claim to be. Before they would allow this itinerant Jewish evangelist to continue to disrupt the status quo, they want to put him to the test because they know that if this continues... The Romans aren't going to like a little uprising in one of their provinces, and so they will quickly come and put it down. So they come, not because they're curious, not because they have spiritual interest, 
but because they're hostile towards what Jesus is doing. Now, they come asking for a test, and this time it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But you'll recall a few chapters ago, the Pharisees came with another group. This time it was the Pharisees and the scribes who came and told Jesus, give us a sign. Now it's the Pharisees and their arch rivals, the Sadducees. It's interesting that Matthew's the only one that's put these two parties together, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the impact is such that Jesus will now warn his disciples as we continue on in Matthew 16. He will warn his disciples about the influence of these two religious parties. So they demand a sign. But that poses a question, what kind of sign would they accept? After all, they've heard the stories about Jesus. He has healed the blind, which was, as we've seen a few times, the first major sign that the Messiah would perform. He's given sight to the blind. He's caused the lame to walk. He's healed people from a multitude of diseases. We've seen that several times in Matthew. He's driven out demons, showing his power over all spiritual forces. He's calmed the waters. He's walked on the seas. He's fed the multitudes, both the Jews and the Gentiles. He displayed power over nature, power over illness, power over spiritual forces, power over the needs of mankind. Moreover, as we've seen from the beginning in chapter 1, Matthew goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that had been given long ago by the prophets, showing how Jesus is fulfilling them, and he is thus the Jewish Messiah, the hope of Israel, the one who fulfills all promises. So we've seen fulfillments concerning predictions of his birth, his death, his life, his miracles, his actions. What else could they want? So we might ask the question, then, are they really sincere? Or is this just a power play on their part? And I think it's clear that it's the latter. They want to come to control Jesus. Instead of looking at the things that he has already done, listening to the reports that they have already heard, they demand a special sign for themselves. They're more concerned with their standing before the Roman leaders and before the Jewish people than they are in their standing before a holy God who has sent the one who is standing right in front of them. Stand down, they say to Jesus, so that we do not lose it all. Show us a sign that is unmistakably coming from heaven. And they test him. And the word that is used here for testing is the exact same word that was used for Satan when he tested Jesus when he went off into the wilderness for 40 days. It's the same word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in places like Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 6, where the Lord said, do not test the Lord your God. So if these religious leaders were really aware of what was going on, of who this one, one in front of them with whom they are dealing, they wouldn't have put him to the test. Now, perhaps in their minds they're thinking, yes, but at times in the word of God, we are called to put to test the works of a prophet. Okay, fair, isn't fair enough. But the works of the prophets were already plain. The work of this prophet was already plain what he had done. In this case, they're just testing Jesus so that he doesn't have growing influence, taking away from them what they have. They want to control him. They want to protect their privileged position and their status quo in the temple, in the lives of the people, in the synagogue, and controlling the sacrifice. And so we see the challenge. Show us a sign. And in response, then Jesus gives a consideration you don't understand. A consideration you don't 
understand. Now, let, before we move on, let's just consider for a minute the meaning of this word sign. The word in the original is simeon. It refers to an event or occurrence that points to something greater and beyond itself. That's what a sign does. It points to something beyond itself. It teaches something beyond itself. So they're saying, show us a sign that, that points beyond you, Jesus, to heaven itself so that we know that, in fact, you're coming from God. And you, you, you look in the expression and say, show us a sign from heaven. I think what we have here is an English grammar, a metonymy. A metonymy is where you take one word and substitute it for another. And I think here the word for heaven really means God. You recall that in the gospel according to Luke, he likes the expression, the kingdom of God is used again and again and again. But in the gospel according to Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. Because here Matthew, as he is writing to Jewish, originally Jewish readers, he takes great respect for the name of God and uses heaven instead of God. And so here they're really saying, show us that you're from God. To which Jesus replies, you look to the skies. And our text goes on. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. So we know that the Lord Jesus is a good teacher. So here they've come with this confrontation. And he knows the hearts of men. He knows that this delegation has come because they're not sincere about the things of God, but they're sincere about keeping hold of what they have. They're not sincere about whether Jesus truly is the Messiah. They just want to stay in control. So he answers their challenge with an observation, saying, well, you know how to make predictions about the weather. If it's red in the evening, the weather will be fair. If it's red in the morning, it will rain all day. I actually, growing up, we would go fishing a lot in the mornings in, in Minnesota, and we had the same similar expression. Red at night, sailor's delight. Red in the morning, sailor's warning. And we knew whether we could go out on the water based on what the sky said. This is what Jesus is he's saying. You, you can look at these simple things. He a answers them with a bit of folk wisdom, knowing that every people group around the world has their methods for predicting the weather, predicting what is to come. One of the fun things that Carol and I have had is we've had the privilege of living in different cultures and in different places. It's learning how people make decisions, how they observe what's going on, how they can predict what the future is. It's like every culture has its own version of the farmer's almanac and how they can talk about what is coming, their local customs for predicting what is to come. So Jesus says, you have your customs. And in this case, you actually are fairly accurate in predicting what will happen with the weather. But then in a not-so-subtle way, he will let them know that their ability to predict the weather far exceeds their ability to see what is happening right in front of them. In other words, they make better meteorologists than they do theologians. And so he says, you miss the signs. You miss the signs. Verse, verse 3, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He's saying, in essence, you're hypocrites. You make claims to know certain things, but you're missing the most important things. They're focusing on the temporal, on the material, yet they miss the eternal and the ultimate and the true. So as they're interpreting the weather patterns, which are passing quickly and frequently, they cannot interpret the signs 
of the times. In other words, he's saying you're missing out on what God is doing right now in your midst, even as you are watching. It's a reminder here that while they're interpreting the weather, God is the one that's in control of the times. He is the ultimate one in control of the times, and it ultimately is his timepiece that matters, not whatever we can make up in our fertile imaginations. We might see the weather as the Pharisees and the Sadducees did and miss the kingdom of heaven, which is what they did. The kingdom of heaven that had come among them, that was evident in their midst, all these things that are happening to prove that he was the one who had been promised. So Jesus gives a tough rebuke to those who are self-righteous, to those who are self-indulgent. He said, you see what is in the skies and yet you have missed what has come from heaven. You think you're the teachers of the word of God and you're the right interpreters of the prophets, but you're missing what is happening right in front of you. You're guilty for not recognizing me for who I am. You're not noticing what God is doing and that this is a divine time in prophetic history and salvation history. Now, this is not the only time that Jesus has had these type of confrontations. We won't take the time, but I want you to just put a note in your notes about John chapter 5. And just on a side note, if you're looking for a chapter where Jesus clearly explains who he is and that he is God, read John chapter 5. It's a great way to respond to those that say Jesus never said that he was God. In John chapter 5, in several ways, he clearly does. He doesn't say, I am God. I just do the things of God. And so he's making this great display of who he is. But in John chapter 5, he heals a man on the Sabbath who had been lame for 38 years. And he makes a claim to his power and his display. And there's a battle with the Pharisees back and forth over whether he has the right to do this or not. And we get to John 5, verses 39 and 40, and Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures testify to Jesus. And Jesus is with the Pharisees. He's with the Sadducees. He's saying, you're looking to the signs and you're missing the message. And I hope that that would not be the case of any of us here today that we'll spend time in the Word of God, that we'll spend time in Bible studies, that we'll spend time memorizing, and we'll miss the main point, which is to point us to Christ and have our hearts warmed for Christ, wanting to worship Christ and proclaim Christ and live for Christ and take up our cross daily and follow Him. Because those that have truly met the Lord Jesus, they see their lives changed and transformed. That's what it means to be born again a newness of life, a new orientation, a new power, a new ability as the Spirit indwells us. And now that which we didn't want to do before, now we want to do, we long to do, we want to worship God and obey Him because we love Him. Pastor Ray Stedman records the following testimony in his book entitled Authentic Christianity. He says an alcoholic who had become a believer was asked how he could possibly believe all the nonsense in the Bible about miracles. You don't believe that Jesus changed the water into wine, do you? I surely do, he said, because in our house, Jesus changed the whiskey into furniture. 
when Jesus gets a hold of a man's heart, he changes it. And that shows in how he thinks and how he talks and how he walks and how he plans and how he lives and how he interacts with those around him. And here Jesus has performed all of these miracles, these wonders, these signs, these powers, these healings. He's changed lives. And here this group shows up to challenge him. He says, you've missed it. He needs to turn it around and challenge them to repent and to believe. And so we've seen the, the challenge. We've seen the confrontation. Now we see the conclusion. No sign for you. The conclusion. No sign for you. This delegation perhaps came with a sense of their own self-importance, self-imposed authority, but Jesus will not back down to their demands. He knows that they're claiming something to which they are not entitled. And since they're not coming to him in faith, he sees no need to acquiesce to their sinful requests. And so Jesus just offers a flat denial. Not only does he offer a flat denial, he says, you are wicked and wayward. For he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This generation is living in a wicked way. That's why they're evil. They're living in an adulterous situation, not necessarily physically, but spiritually because they're running after things other than the living God. And they're betraying God with their idolatry and their self-love. And there's plenty of history behind this saying. In fact, as you begin to read through the prophets more and more, you see that this is something similar that the prophets said to the people of Israel century after century. You're a wicked and adulterous generation. And we have examples, among other things, in the prophet Hosea and the prophet Ezekiel, but they could be enumerated many more than that. And Jesus is saying, you're continuing in that same pattern. You're also a wicked and adulterous generation. You know, in every generation, because we're curious, we want to know things that are hidden or secret or just outside of our reach, and we're always looking for signs. We always want to have that secret knowledge. We want to have that, that special understanding about what is to come. And so there'll be people using things that are clearly forbidden in the Scriptures, tarot cards and reading tea leaves and astrology and palm reading and all these other things. Today it might be crystals. It might be seeking mediums. There's different things that people do, and these things are forbidden in the Scriptures. Because God has said, I'm the one that's in control of time. I'm the one that will lead my people. I'm the one that will teach them as they seek me, as they study my word, as they're guided by my spirit. And I've seen in recent days so-called, I'm sorry to use that expression, but so-called churches calling into question even the veracity and authority of the Lord's Prayer, which starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, and say, oh, 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 that's the patriarchy. We've got to redefine how we pray. Jesus would say, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. My friends, we have everything we need in this book for life and godliness. We do not need to go looking for other things, for secret things, for hidden things. This book is without error. It is our source of authority. It is sufficient to guide us into all godliness and righteousness. But my friends, there's no shortcut. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes commitment. It takes time to study this word so that we might know his mind, know his truth, and walk in his ways.
So here we have these religious leaders who have come seeking for a sign because they didn't spend time in the word or they misunderstood the words. And Jesus says, you're not going to get a sign. Jesus is in control. He's not going to be reduced to the level of a circus performer who will give whatever the so-called religious leaders are demanding of him. He will not submit to their authority because he's the one that came with the divine authority. In a sense, Jesus is telling them, look, you already have all that you need to believe. You've seen my works. You've heard my words. You've seen what I've done. But in any case, what would you expect above that? My friends, each and every day we need to affirm and confirm that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth and the Lord of our lives. He is the sign from heaven, so to speak, and yet they're demanding more. And so Jesus has to rebuke these Pharisees and these Sadducees, for they did not see the signs of the times. Now, it's interesting that there are similar expressions found in the different gospel accounts, but this is the only time where this full expression is found in the New Testament, where the full expression, the signs of the times. And I know that oftentimes we'll pick up a a popular book on prophecy and People are trying to speculate about where we might be in the timepiece of God, about where we might happen to be in God's prophetic calendar. And they use this expression, the signs of the times. But they need to recognize that in its original context, it's not referring to that. It's it's referring to that which is happening right in front of them in the times of Jesus, right in front of them in that first generation. So it's not referring to things yet unknown, things yet future, things yet to happen. In the original context, he's saying, you're missing what is happening right now, right here. I'm here. I'm the Lord. You missed it. Now, that's confirmed by the use of the word times here, because in the original language, there's actually two words for time. Here we have the plural form of the word kairos, which speaks of specific events, specific seasons, very particular things, usually related to God's timing of things. It's not necessarily referred to the passage of time. That's a different Greek word, chronos, where we get the word chronology or chronometer. One thing happens after another. Here it's referring to this special divine action of God that brings about things in a particular time. And what is that time? What are the signs of the times? The times is the arrival of the Messiah. He's right there in front of him. And so the enemies have come and they've asked for a sign. And they asked for a sign because they've missed the signs that God had already given. They missed the kairos of God. And so Jesus warns them. They say, look at Jonah. Look at Jonah. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So, They've asked for a sign, he refused. Another group comes, they ask for a sign, he refused. He gives them the same response, the sign of Jonah. So, what is that sign? Well, Jonah was a prophet who was called to preach good news to the wicked people of Nineveh. But he was a reluctant preacher. He didn't want the salvation of his listeners. He wanted their judgment. So finally, he does preach warnings of God's judgment to them, and it brought about their repentance. 
There was a spiritual awakening among the Ninevites who turned away from their sin and turned to the living God. But notice that Jonah did not perform a sign. Jonah was the sign. He was a sign of righteousness. He was the prophet living among a wicked people. Here, Jesus is in the presence of a wicked people. Are they going to see the sign? Well, we can go further. Let's compare a little bit the ministries of Jonah and compare that to the, the ministry of Jonah, compare that to the ministry of Jesus. Jonah was called by God to go and preach. Jesus was called by God to go and preach. Jonah was thrown into the sea. Well, in a sense, Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath. But Jonah was thrown into the sea for his own sin, not for the sin of others. Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath for the sin of those he came to save. Jonah died figuratively, but as the guilty one so that the innocent might live. Jesus was the innocent one who died so the guilty would live because he took on their guilt and died in their place and paid their price. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Jesus spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jonah preached and warned of God's judgment, but then also sat alongside the city and wished for its condemnation. Jesus preached and warned people about God's judgment and wept over the city because she was hardened of heart. But the Ninevites heard the message and repented. The Jews of Jesus' day are not listening, but are hardening their heart. Therefore, the Ninevites did not receive judgment and were not destroyed in their day. Unfortunately, about 100 years later, they were because they didn't continue to walk in the righteousness of God. But at least in that day, they were not destroyed. But the people of Jerusalem in Jesus' day will be destroyed in that generation when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is torn down because they did not repent. So Jonah was a type of death and resurrection. And Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of dying on behalf of a wicked people that he might rise, that they might live again. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were to recognize this sign so that they would not perish. Now, in my time studying in, in theology and in different programs, you see it all over the place now in online blogs and chats and uh, apologetic discussions. There's some angst that skeptics have about the story of Jonah. They prefer to see him as some type of imaginary figure or a symbol of righteousness. But he wasn't actually a historical figure. So let's think about that. What, what, what would be the case if Jonah did not exist? What is Jesus doing here? Well, we would have Jesus using an imaginary figure as a sign pointing to him. He would use an imaginary figure, preaching judgment to an imaginary people who then have an imaginary repentance. And Jesus is going to use that sign to preach to a real people, real repentance in the first century. Now, the story is meant to be more. The story of Jonah is meant to be more than just a moral lesson. It is preparation 
for the coming of the Messiah. So I think that we just need to stand firm on the revelation of God as it is given to us, and it'll vindicate itself time and time again. Jesus clearly affirms that Jonah was a real historical person, that the events of his life happened. And if that is not true, if he was not a historical person, then we can't trust Jesus either. Because here he was an error, and a Savior who is an error can save no one. He would no longer be the perfect sacrifice for sin. It's a great way to, to deal with his enemies of that day, those that oppose him. For he would know that the, the Pharisees would accept the full revelation of the Old Testament, but they didn't understand it. And to their peril and to their shame, they're now denying Jesus as he is using their very word, the very word that God had given them to show that they're missing it. They're missing the sign. So as symbolized by Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus is the sign of his messiahship. And many times he has stated in his, his preaching, we've already seen it several times in Matthew, you find it in all the Gospels, he promises that he will go into Jerusalem, that he will suffer, that he will die, that he will be put into a tomb, and he'll be raised again on the third day as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. And the early church understood that. The early church understood that the pivotal point was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has gone back to heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, he sends out the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, and the Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter preaches and uses the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as proof of his Messiahship. That the empty tomb shows that the plan of God has been fulfilled. While we were living in Jordan, we were only 45 minutes from the empty tomb. But we had a hard time getting there because we had to cross over several political frontiers and boundaries, and so we didn't actually go and lay eyes on it personally. But we knew it was there. And we knew that as long as that tomb remained empty, our hearts would remain full because God's hope would be enduring. And my friends, that tomb shall remain empty forever. And so as you face the, str the struggles and trials of daily life, you can lean upon and lean into a living Savior who has promised to bring his people through and who will reign one day with a rod of iron over all the nations. And the sign that he is the Messiah is he has risen from the dead. Have you believed that sign for yourself today? And lastly, we see it's time to go. It's time to go. So he left them and departed. Jesus will continue on in his ministry and his enemies will not thwart him. And this statement seems like just a simple one and in some ways it is. But there's more importance here than what we see at first glance. Because as we've said, Matthew 16, it's an important chapter. This departure marks a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. His ministry in Galilee has now come to an end. And from here, he's going to turn north, and he's going to go further north in the Gentile lands than he has gone before. And we're going to see this great description of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then from there, he will turn, and he'll go back towards Jerusalem. Yes, he will pack, pass back through Galilee, but it will simply be a stopover. There will not be extended times of ministry, of teaching and preaching and healing and loving and serving. The people of Galilee 
will have heard all and received all that they will from the Savior. There's a subtle reminder here, my friends, that the day for us will come when we will hear no more from the Savior. We only have so much time on this earth, and it's a lot shorter than we think it is. Have we had eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe who Jesus says that he is? Doubts about the nature of Jesus are not new. They're even recorded in the New Testament. It goes back to the beginning of the church itself. The Pharisees and the Sadducees refused to believe. But even among those that were closer to Jesus, they didn't always see the sign at first glance. Thomas the doubter. No, I don't believe he's risen from the dead. And unless I put my hands in his side and unless I touch his hands, I won't believe. And Jesus appears to him. And it doesn't even say that he touched Jesus. He might have. It just says he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. But throughout church history, there are many have said, well, unless I see such and such and so and so, I've lost track of how many times over the years in my own personal evangelism I've said, I've heard people tell me, well, I want God to show me a sign. Show me a sign, Lord. Show me a miracle. Then I'll believe in you. But what sign will they accept that has not already been given by God? Every one of us that is alive on planet Earth today has received life and breath from God himself who sustains us moment by moment and in his hand holds the very next breath that we will take. He's the very same God who has numbered our days and knows the day of entrance and the day of exit. He has given us abilities and talents and pleasures and treasures and families and loved ones and jobs and opportunities. And in his common grace, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust, not just on the spiritual children of God. He causes the earth to produce harvest so that the world can eat. We're created in his image with the ability to create and to think and to develop and to build. And we can enter into relationships and we have emotions and we can interact just as he does because we're created in his image. If someone will not accept what has already been given, then what sign will they accept? I pray that all, whether watching online or here this morning, all within the sound of my voice, would not be like those of the day of Jesus and a member of a wicked and adulterous generation. Self-righteousness, self-indulgence can both cause us to miss the truth of Jesus and to miss it all. And as R.C. Sproul reminds us, people may want more from God, but they are not going to get it. He has already given enough evidence to make every human being culpable by raising Jesus from the dead. My friends, do you have ears to hear and eyes to see? Now next week, Jesus will warn his disciples even further to watch out for the religious influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's going to treat us to another lesson on bread. Another lesson on bread from the bread of life. That's what we'll see next week. But until then, what are some lessons that we can draw from today's sermon? Well, because Jesus is Lord, we will not put him to the test. 
but we will take him at his word. I pray that this book would become, if not already, the most precious book you have. That you would spend more time in this book than in other books. As Charles Spurgeon says, it's okay to visit other books, but live in the Bible. I visit a lot of books, but this is my life, and I hope it's yours. Secondly, because we need eyes to see what God is doing, we ask him to open our eyes and grant us understanding of his ways. We are so needy, we are so weak, we are so limited that unless and until we cry out to God, we will continue to find ourselves on the outside looking in. Thirdly, because Jesus has already given us all we need to believe in him, we will not sin against him by asking for more signs. We will not sin against him by asking for more signs. And lastly, because our time to hear Jesus will come to an end one day, we ask the Lord to open our ears to hear and to believe his word today. Now before we start rustling and putting things away, I'd like each of us to just close our eyes. And in the quietness of your heart, I want you to ask this question. Is my trust this morning in Jesus Christ alone for my righteousness and my eternal salvation? And if that is the case for you, then in your heart say, thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to me. Perhaps there is someone this morning that is wrestling over that very issue, and I bid you, sinner, come home. May the Lord open your heart, your eye, your ear to hear, to see, to believe. And would you cry out to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Father, as we think about this passage, we do not want to be those who forget so you remind us of what you have done in our lives. Would you remind us of the signs that we have seen that you have given us, of the truth of your word, the fulfillment of prophecy, a risen Savior from the dead. And would you cause us this week, Father, to stand firm without doubt and without reservation and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Use us this week, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.